Bruce. I will do my best to work this thing out. But if I don't, Montoya and Alan here will take over your parents' case. I've told them everything I know. You can trust them 100%. 100%. Hey, this is Andrew Stewart-Jones. I play Christmas Allen on Gotham, and you are listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Bruce, these are good detectives. If anyone can find the truth, it's them. This is Victoria Cartagena. I play Renee Montoya on Gotham, and you're listening to Gotham TV Podcast. Thank you. Hi, and welcome to Gotham TV Podcast, the unofficial podcast of the TV show Gotham and the Connected DC Universe. I'm Derek, one of your hosts. Hi, and I'm John, your other host. And welcome to episode 30 of our of our show, Gotham TV Podcast. Wow. I know, we've, I can't believe we've got to uh, 30 episodes already. Uh, we're currently on a hiatus, or on a bit of a mid-season break in the UK between uh, the first half of season one of Gotham, which was 10 episodes, and the second half of... Uh, the other 12 episodes. Uh, episodes will start airing again in March over here. Um, yeah, it won't return until March um, on Channel 5 in the UK and also in Ireland. So we still don't know the exact date when it's going to return to Channel 5, but we've been told March. It was spring, so mm-hmm. it has been narrowed down um, Yeah, we- from spring to March, but we now need to just find and we'll... Se- um, give it to you uh, once we know the exact date for the return of Gotham on 5. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So today's episode is going to be a recap of the first 10 episodes of Gotham. Um, We're going to talk through some of our our major points over the arcs. You know, doing a weekly podcast where we talk about the episodes as they go on meant that we couldn't really get a big kind of step back and have a look at the overarching story from the full season. So I think there's a really good opportunity to take take you through our thoughts on some of the main kind of cruxes of how Gotham has, has gone so far. Um, so that'll be this week's episode. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, and also just to see how the different story arcs have developed, we're essentially going to take Jim Gordon and Oswald Cobblepot, one on the side of the law, the other on the side of the criminals, on the bad guys, good guys, bad guys, um, and obviously linking those two things and the context for all of this um, sort of descent into criminality and crazier um, happenings that are going on in Gotham is obviously then the Wayne murder as the overarching event that has kicked off um, all these changes to Gotham, but also to the people living in Gotham. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and then we're going to finish out the show with some feedback from uh, from our listeners. Um, and we're also going to do a bit of a replay for you of, uh, of our interviews with the cast of Gotham. Uh, so hopefully you'll stay, stick with us throughout the, throughout the episode and send on your feedback to feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. One of the other things that uh, we just want to let you know as well is that for our next two podcasts, we're going to be looking at and reviewing and discussing um, the Batman comics Hush in two parts. We know that some of um, our listeners and Twitter followers have been reading the graphic novels um, by Tim Sale and Jeff Loeb um, over this Christmas and New Year break. So we thought we would um, look at these in two parts. So that will be our next set of two podcasts. Yeah, really looking forward to going back to those, seeing that there is a connection with the TV show Gotham as well, that, that they've taken some stuff from it. So we'll definitely be talking through those, and hopefully you get a chance to, to catch up on them and read them before, uh, before our podcast, because we'll be spoiling the heck out of them. And I guess after that, on with our discussion about the first half of season one of Gotham. A man came out of the shadows. He, he, he was tall, with the black mask. And 
He had a hat and gloves and shiny shoes. He took my dad's wallet and my mom's necklace. And then he shot them for no reason. I should have done something. I was too scared. There was nothing you could have done to stop what happened. But there is something you can do now. You can be strong. So where to begin, essentially, um, for episodes 1 to 10 of Gotham, and what better place to start the whole crux um, of the entire concept, mm-hmm. in a sense, for the show and for this um, first half of the season is the Wayne murders. Yeah, Thomas and Martha Wayne's shot down. The series opens with that familiar scene, that iconic scene that's been seen in so many of the films, so many of the comics and graphic novels, mm. so many of the cartoons. Um, but there are changes to it. I mean, first off, there's blood. Yeah, yeah. There true. will be blood. Um, but it's Jim uh, Gordon and Harvey Bullock two new partners that are called in to investigate. Harvey certainly doesn't want to even be there. He Absolutely. wants he doesn't want to touch this murder scene um, at all or get involved in the investigation, which tells you something more about this um, this familiar murder. The murderer is masked so that we don't know who it is anymore. Mm. Certainly in Tim Burton's there was no mask worn, and in fact, I think even with Christopher Nolan's, yeah. um, there was no mask worn. You could see their face, the murderer's face, perfectly. Mm-hmm. There is a witness to this murder in the form and shape of Sleda Kyle, who, as we know, becomes hugely important um, in Bruce's life down down the line. How important will she be at this stage um, is another thing explored within these first ten episodes. Yeah. And then that we kind of find that the murderer could be connected to the sort of wider crime um, leaders and mobsters of the city of Gotham. That it's not a single um, criminal acting alone or even that it's um, maybe a weird criminal that is has been spooking uh, Carmine Falcone for the whole of this first 10 series. It could be a quite organised, almost assassination of Thomas and Martha Wayne. So this is a really interesting opening, which is both familiar, but they introduce some nice, subtle, and also some big changes yeah. to this whole scene. Absolutely. I think before the show aired, I think everybody had seen a version of the, the murder of Thomas and Martha Wayne. And I think you know what they've done a really good job of is, is making this central uh, to the storyline of Gotham, it's something that's really playing out every episode. There's some element of it that's that's being you know looked into, or some some far-reaching impact uh, at times across the city of Gotham. And um, we still don't know who the murderer is. Ten episodes in, we don't know who it was that actually killed uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. There's been some theories. Obviously, Selena Kyle's come in, and she's um, she's declared that she knows who killed the Waynes uh, twice on two occasions in two different episodes. Um, but, again, we don't have an actual murder. But we have a mugshot. Yes, A we do. sketch, an artist's sketch of the murderer uh, on the, from the description of Selena Kyle. Yeah. Um, looks fairly heavy set in terms of the jaw. Mm-hmm. Forgive me, anyone who is um, supposed to be represented by that mugshot. <laughs> um, 
looks thuggish, you mm-hmm. know, in a sense. Looks like um, maybe they're fairly well built and fairly solid. You have a theory. Yeah. had a particular theory of who it might be. Yeah, I think as the, as the series went on, as, as you get to learn more and more about the characters, there's a, a, one of the henchmen of, uh, of Fish Mooney, uh, Butch Gilzean, um, played by Drew Powell, uh, has, has seemed to me to be quite likely as a character that while being central to, to the episodes that he's been in, he hasn't had a huge amount to do as such other than be the background character, but he does seem to have his fingers in a lot of pies, and I'm wondering if he would be a person that could have been responsible for the death of Thompson Martha. You know, he could have been just the person that was sent out to kill them, but it could be an important reveal if he's the one that did it, that, uh, that this character that you've watched the whole time along and you weren't aware of did have this connection to the Wayne murders. That's quite an interesting idea. Absolutely. Um, That they're hiding in plain sight almost Mm -hmm. is a great idea. And that also influences maybe um, another theory that came from, was it Legends of Gotham? Yeah, yeah, they they talked about one of their, one of the other characters where essentially Jim and Harvey are fighting in the police department and they step on the shoes of a guy in the precinct. We know that the killer of the Waynes has shiny shoes. The guy stands up and goes, you know, don't stand on my, don't stand on my shoes clown to them it was our joker watching episode two of our was, podcast yeah. uh, and they've posited that this guy is also quite a heavy set guy quite a big built guy and you've never seen him again in the police in the police precinct so potentially he was again hiding in plain sight it could potentially be the so murder. there's another hiding in plain sight um as well another theory that going on from our friends over at legends of gotham mm-hmm. there's also then a whole range of possibilities as to why the Waynes were killed that have come out during these first 10 episodes as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. One of the big reasons why I think we chose this as being such a central point of the 10 episodes is the why of of, uh, of the murders rather than just the who killed them, which is, you know, at the end of the day, if it follows the comic books, it was some, um, some it was Joe Chill, the uh, some standard guy off the street who shot and killed the, the Waynes. If it doesn't follow the comic books, it could just as easily be a very low-level criminal to kill them. But the big piece that's that's been borne out in Gotham, the TV show, has very much been what the far-reaching effects of the deaths of uh, of the Waynes. One of one of the pieces that I thought was, you know, it, it came out that the Waynes were murdered because of their opposition to uh, Arkham Asylum. Could that be the reason that they were killed? Um, it's now since reopened um, because with concessions to two of the major crime families of Gotham. So um, so the Waynes were opposed to the opening of Arkham in the form that it's been opened now by the end of the 10 episodes. Um, and in order to get it open, the mayor has to had to give some concessions to both uh, Moroni and to Falcone, the two major crime families of the city. So I think that's quite a big, quite a big possible reason why they were murdered. This is really interesting then because it means the Waynes' plan, and I think in particular... Uh, Martha Wayne's plan, she seemed to have a real central uh, role in developing this, um, is completely scrubbed, really. That Arkham is sort of rebuilt, it is given the finances and resources to offer great sort of mental health care, Mm -hmm. and is gone, as you say, for concessions to um, Moroni and Falcone, but that there's a really great connection there, I think, from uh, Jeff Johns' graphic novel, uh, Batman Earth One, mm-hmm. where Martha Wayne's family is in some way, and I can't remember exactly how, connected to um, Arkham and to the asylum. 
Yeah, I think I think her her maiden name was Arkham. Yeah, I think so. So it it's, it's a really nice little idea there that that was part of it. This power battle between Maroni and Falcone, and um, essentially the Waynes needed to be um, removed. Yeah, yeah. One of the other ones then, which kind of came up in the episode Viper, mm-hmm. um, really was saying that maybe the Waynes were murdered because of how they were influencing. Um, Wayne Enterprises in terms of the direction that they were going. They didn't particularly or necessarily want to go down and manufacturing arms or weapons and so on, but other members of the the board of Wayne Enterprises did. There seems to be some members of Wayne Enterprises who simply just didn't want them around anymore because they were doing um, maybe undercover um, work without Thomas and Martha Wayne's knowledge. But ultimately, this is something that very much features heavily within the episode Viper. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was a really interesting episode and really interesting to see that other side of Wayne Enterprises, which we've seen in, in the movies before. We've seen we've seen some of the bad characters or bad elements that are within uh, Wayne Enterprises who were looking to take it over before Bruce comes back and takes on the mantle of the of the head of the board, essentially. Um, so it's interesting to see that that's been already brought out in the show. Now, we've only seen one episode that it was in, uh, which was Viper. Uh, we haven't seen any future repercussions, though. We haven't seen that member of uh, of the Wayne staff. Uh, she's not a member of the board, I don't think. she's. Uh, she, I think, yeah, she calls it out that she's not actually a member of the board, but she is. Um, she's quite integral to the connection with uh, with Wayne Enterprises and talking to Bruce. So, um so it's quite interesting. I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot more of that in the second half of the season, that we'll see more of Wayne Enterprises. Absolutely. There then is also the other possibility of why they were killed, mm. which was that they were murdered to essentially destabilize the whole Falcone crime family's grip on uh, Gotham. Yeah. Um, you know, Carmine calls them the other pillar in Gotham and that without them... Gotham will fall into chaos. And Falcone really keeps stating throughout these first 10 episodes about the old rules, the old Gotham, the old alliances that, you know, he would just as much rather have the Waynes as the natural yin or yang of his organized crime businesses Mm -hmm. than any kind of weird um, criminal who doesn't play by the rules. He knows the Waynes because they're predictable. They play by the rules. They know him because he's predictable, plays by the rules. He has his hands in many different pockets controlling them, and that works. With them removed, it becomes more chaotic, more unpredictable for Carmine Falcone. He has that great line, which I think we talked about um, at the time, I think it was in the pilot between him and Jim Gordon where he says you can't have organized crime without an organized city and, and public office yeah. in that sense. And it's without about law and order. Isn't and it? law and order. It's yeah. about business. Mm-hmm. And this idea that law and order is the flip side of organized crime mm-hmm. and there is this kind of mutual understanding and balance that leads to an equilibrium where they kind of coexist, almost symbiotic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think it it's marginally plays into kind of the final theory of why so far we, we think that the Waynes were the ones that were murdered and why it's so central. And the other reason that I'm that I'm seeing really is that it could be just for political reasons or could be for 
political reasons. Mayor Aubrey James has been quite a central character over the course of these episodes where he's, you know, he's been the one that, that has been uh, batting heads quite significantly with Jim Gordon. But essentially, from the beginning, he's shown as being a corrupt official. Many of the GCPD have been shown as being corrupt and taking backhanders and having snitches that are that they're that are paying them off and that kind of stuff. And a lot of the officials in the city seem to be corrupt and they're mentioned many, many times. And um, what we see is after they've been murdered, which essentially relieves them of all the pressure of that side of the city um, that has been put, in, put down on the political members of society. Uh, after, the murder, after the murders of the Waynes, what we see is the rise in vigilantes throughout the city. So potentially it was a way, of, uh, they were murdered for political reasons, but it's backfired on them because people are taking up, uh, take, individual people are kind of taking up the charge that the Waynes set for them to take on these big members of society um, and protect themselves, protect kind of the little people from uh, from the big organisations or the big political guys that are taking backhanders. Um, I kind of think that's a good, that's an interesting idea. Absolutely, and, and uh, certainly vigilantes in Balloon Man, in um, a whole host of other different episodes like Viper as well and The Spirit of the Goat have all come in um, to play yeah. uh, throughout the season. Um, again, suggesting as well an unbalance within the city, but also then this political element where they were removed because of what they stood for Absolutely. from a political point of view. And of course, all these reasons for why the Waynes were murdered lead into the who in that it's a public official like Mayor Aubrey. Mm -hmm. It is a crime boss um, like Falcone or Sal Maroni or... It's actually a corporate hit. This idea that it was an assassination suggests that you know, maybe if it's not the lone assassin, that there is kind of a bigger picture, a bigger um, sort of network or, um, and spider's web surrounding this, that behind that assassin is a bigger person to play, like Carmine Falcone Absolutely. or Mayor Aubrey. Or maybe someone that isn't quite as big and who, again, we are just not considering. Mm -hmm. Dare I say it? Maybe Penguin. Yep, I did. I did. He I understood did. what the Waynes meant as such. Yep. He could see that storm coming. It's mm -hmm. there in the pilot. Now, I'm not entirely sure I think that it is. I, wouldn't, I think that that would or may potentially mess with the canon of it. I, th I think we can talk about it as that. Uh, yeah, definitely. Nonetheless, it's still an option, I think. I think so. I think so. I think we'll talk about it a little bit more as we go through kind of the arc of Oswald Cobblepot. Um, anything else about the Wayne murders themselves that stood out to you? Um, it, it's something that you mentioned earlier on, actually, if, if you don't mind me interrupting when I asked a question to you. Um, no. One of the things that you mentioned was the blood. Um, one of the things that kind of stood out across the course of the 10 episodes that we haven't really mentioned at all is that the violence in the app in the show has been quite high uh, considering the time of the evening that it broadcasts in the US. We've mentioned it a couple of times in the podcast with regards to some of the violence that's in there. And it all started out with that first moment of the first episode where it was a very bloody death of the of the of Thomas and Martha Wayne. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And anything else about the, the murders that's in No, I think ultimately it's that this is the leap off point for then these two principal characters that then dominate the rest of the the 10 episodes and mm -hmm. um, from the pilot right through to Lovecraft and yeah. um, is Jim Gordon and Oswald Cobblepot. so mm -hmm. 
I think with that we should move on to, to Jim Gordon. You see, Councillor Dent knows how to walk the line. He knows where the edge is. And you, Mr. Gordon, do not know where the edge is. Mayor James. Kiss my ass. So yeah, that's Mayor Aubrey James talking to Jim Gordon and uh, and Harry Dent about about Jim's change, I suppose, as a character. Um, Jim Gordon is obviously the centre of the show uh, of Gotham. He was from the point that the show came to its inception in November 2013, I think. He was announced as being the central character in the show, leading to much commentary about him not having a moustache, not having glasses, that kind of stuff, you know, will that will that be his superhero moment at the end of the series where he walks off with his with his uh, moustache and glasses, very funny stuff but uh, but realistically we wanted to talk about, you know, his arc on the show and how it's how he started and, and kind of how he's, how he's ended up in that scene and that's kind of the closing scene of, of uh, episode 10 where he gets sent off out of the GCPD and off to, off to Arkham. Uh, he starts out the show that he, that he essentially meets Bruce Wayne at the death of the uh, of uh, Thomas and Martha Wayne. He meets them at the murder scene and is, is now set to investigate who, who killed them. Um, kind of how he starts in the show. Yeah, and he becomes really involved with Bruce Wayne and with Alfred, yeah. um, almost becoming, along with Alfred, a bit of a surrogate father figure to Bruce, giving advice, even to some extent giving Alfred advice. I mean, one of the great things that's been really nice to see over these first 10 episodes has been Alfred trying to grapple with bringing up Bruce and dealing with kind of being his guardian and at the same time his butler, yeah. not valet, yeah. um, I hasten to add. <laughs> and um, that's been really nice to see that he's been more comfortable with um, boxing gloves on, teaching Bruce how to box than, in a sense just day-to-day stuff, which is what Jim is trying to call him up on, on how he should behave, you know? For Alfred, it's very much, you're a Wayne, you need to behave like a Wayne and project that image, or I can teach you how to fight, how to defend yourself, that I can do. And, you know, even when Selina Kyle comes in, whilst originally a bit frosty about her, he does warm to her and sees what good he has with Bruce. But Jim becomes hugely involved with Bruce Wayne because of his parents' murder. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we heard from, from Ben McKenzie when we interviewed him, which you'll hear later on in the episode. Um, he talked about the fact that he's essentially trying to do everything he can to make sure that Bruce doesn't go off the edge and become a vigilante, essentially. Um, he can see the danger in the kid from the start, from the very start. He can see there's something within this kid that he needs to protect and need to, needs to guide and he may not be getting that from Alfred. So there's there's been a great dynamic there between the two of them. And you see this, he's very upstanding, and you see this in Jim, and you see that how he behaves with Bruce and with Alfred. He is an upstanding, he has an ethical centre, I'm not saying it's absolutely pure, mm-hmm. but he does have it, he has a compass there, an ethical and moral, moral compass that he does use. And that also in a sense, is a bit of his downfall within Gotham. It is almost like, not that he's a fish out of water in being a police officer or detective, it's this ethical and moral fish out of water in the corrupt gloop that um, is sort of oozing into Gotham after 
the murder of the Waynes. And that, I find, is... It's almost a bit Futurama. Is it Gotham that's moving, or is it Jim is standing still, <laughs> and he's not changing, but the city is? Yeah. Or is it that Jim is changing within a stationary area and yeah. that's the interesting thing i think here absolutely i kind of like to think of jim gordon as you know similar to rick grimes in the walking dead or ned stark in the first season of of uh of game of thrones you know the, the, he's a very good moral center of the of, of his society and people around him but he, the choices he's making are leading to some really interesting things happening within the city in the first episode for example he goes against falcone's plans and is sent to kill oswald cobblepot he doesn't kill them. He sets him free. And again, we've heard from uh, from Robin Lord Taylor about his character that by setting him free, he's essentially turning him into the Penguin character who will come back and wreak havoc on the city. Um, you know, by challenging the mayor's plans, he gets Arkham to be reopened, but with no improvements. Not the way the Waynes would have wanted it to be done. Absolutely. But, but by challenging the mayor, he's now created Arkham Asylum, which is huge. These, like, these are huge changes to the city. Just by doing things that he thinks is the right way to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, very interesting. Because he's dealing with other people that don't react the same way that a moral or ethical person or a good person would. They are purely out for themselves. And this almost corrupts what they are thinking of what he's saying. Mm-hmm. And that's the really interesting thing, I think, coming from that. And, I mean, to the point where, you know, Oswald ultimately begins to change Jim's future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He becomes kind of the the, the linchpin for Oswald Cobblepot, which we'll talk a bit more about in a minute, I suppose. Um, but generally, there's there's kind of been a the centre of the show. We wondered how it was going to play out, where there's a lot of investigations that go on. Jim is obviously a detective in the GCPD. He is given crimes to solve um, throughout the series of the show, but they all kind of have a, a very good central point to them that... that does bleed into the overarching 10 episodes that we've seen so far. Um, Some of the investigations have been into vigilantes, which we spoke about, uh, things like Balloon Man, which was a vigilante that couldn't take it anymore when when the the social elements of society are starting to break down. We see James Aubrey wants to get rid of all the street kids, essentially, so this man's job has been perverted into just processing children rather than helping them so he tries to take out yep. some of the leaders in society uh, that's jim's invest- first investigation really yeah you have the spirit of the goat where it's almost feels like a supernatural thing but mm. it is um the wealthy and the rich being attacked that they are beginning to suck away all the money the resources from the ground up towards them yep. in you know in their penthouses and so on and that this becomes too much and there is an invoking of this spirit which is ultimately a ruse again another vigilante taking mm-hmm. out the top uh one percenters children yep. so that in a sense they don't breed again and then you have viper which is almost about corporate greed mm-hmm. um, and and corporate ethics about uh, a man who is against what ultimately Wayne Enterprises has been doing. Yeah. And then you have also then the other vigilante is the bomber um, in Hargrove, I think it is, from the Harvey Dent episode as well. So all these investigations into different aspects, vigilantes, Mm -hmm. but then there has also been this serialised or overarching element of Jim investigating the Wayne murders and then investigating the Wayne murders without the knowledge of his superiors, in, yeah. this, in this case, Captain Essen. Or his or, partner. Or his partner, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, and that whole case 
being looked at by Jim and ultimately being passed over to um, the MCU in the Penguin's Umbrella episode, the the big reveal episodes of, of the season so far. This is all linking into um, an overarching mob war as well with connected in to the Wayne's uh, murder too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, some of the other kind of investigations that he did get involved in were things like the Dollmaker's henchmen in the second episode who were trying to steal the, kill- the kids of the city. Um, a yeah. really, really fun uh, little Yeah, that was uh, a good episode. Yeah. There was the hired vigilante in Arkham who turned out to be hired by Oswald to destabilize both Sal Maroney and Falcone. Um, without any either either's knowledge, which was a really a really uh, fun one, the uh, the guy who shot everybody through the eye hole, <laughs> and that was again another really good example of where Oswald changes Jim's future, and you can sense that Jim has been led down this path mm. that's set for him by Oswald Cobblepot in a really manipulative, great way. One of the other uh, villains that they've investigated as well was with the mask episode with Richard Silas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Another another kind of business leader in the city, and how he's you know perverting the course of of uh, of the people that work for him to make sure that they all fight and kill each other to get the best jobs in this financial institution. Um, and then we had Dick Lovecraft, who was another uh, business leader in the city, uh, who was kind of being painted as a really bad guy by Harvey Dent, who essentially just said, "I'm not actually a bad guy. I'm just a business guy trying to make it." And got killed for it. Um, yeah, so so there's been some really good investigations that are playing into the overarching series. Um, definitely, so far. definitely. And then he's got a number of different relationships. There's his relationship to Barbara King, his mm. fiancée. There's his relationship to his partner, Harvey Bullock. And then there's his relationship to the rest of the GCPD. Mm. And within that, we're also involved in the MCU. Yeah, and obviously Harvey Dent as well. Yeah, the whole the whole piece there. Yeah, so kind of first up, you know, Barbara Keane, um, her, his his fiance, and um, we see at the beginning of the series that, you know, they seem to be a very loving, loving couple. Um, but as the season has progressed, there's more and more of Jim's, uh, Jim's life that he's had to keep separate from Barbara, and that's had huge implications in their relationship, really. Yeah, there's a, an increasing souring of, of that relationship, and it ultimately boils down to secrets. Initially, Barbara Keane and the secrets Jim keeping is keeping from her from his job about the psychotic murderers that he has mm-hmm. to deal with yeah. and the criminals and mobsters, but also then the reflection back is that she is keeping um, secrets about her previous love life from him in the shape of her relationship with Lenny Montoya from the MCU. Mm -hmm. And Jim and Lenny Montoya, at least up until episode The Penguin's Umbrella, Mm. do not have the best of professional relationships. So... That, too, adds a further tension and pressure to this relationship that you see just continuously deteriorate and comes to a huge breaking point as well in Penguin's Umbrella. Yeah, absolutely. I think the the big break here is, you know, Barbara wants to be let in. She's wondering why suddenly Jim is keeping stuff from her. And really what he's actually keeping from her is that he didn't murder someone. That's essentially what he's keeping from her, that he didn't murder Oswald Cobblepot when told to by the by the mob, because if she finds out, then she's in danger. And um, once she starts to find out, and once she once she gets you know attacked in her home by Butch Gilzean, and then 
gets kidnapped by uh, by Victor Zaz, a great performance uh, and a great character. Uh, Anthony Carrigan played, played him in the show. Um, really, really good character. But once she gets kidnapped by Victor Zaz, um, her whole world has changed and she's terrified uh, to stick around with with a guy like Jim who could keep this much from her uh, and could, uh, could put her in this much danger, really. She can't take it. Um, yeah, and, and that world of Jim ultimately brings it all flooding to her that she can't deal with this. Yeah. Maybe so far it's at the moment. She can't deal deal with it at the moment. Yeah. Um, but she leaves Jim and ultimately we are given her back in the loving, tender embrace of her former lover, Rene Montoya, yeah. in bed at yeah. One of the the end of one of the episodes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was episode nine, I think. Yeah, it was yeah. the Harvey Dent episode. Yeah, like you know, it's fascinating, and I think there's been, I suppose, a lot of a lot of kind of talk about about Barbara Keane and Jim Gordon's relationship. Definitely, Barbara made some very silly decisions, um, and definitely there's there's some stuff, more stuff to talk about there. But uh, I'm really hopeful that they'll be able to do some more with that with that character throughout the rest of the season. Um, essentially, we'll talk about that a little bit more later on. I think. Yeah, um, get to our feedback, but uh, but yeah, I think there's 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 definitely not. It's not all Jim's fault. It's not all Barbara's fault. There's, there is a, a huge reason why the characters aren't together anymore. But um, but yeah, that's one of the big relationships, I suppose, from this part this part of the season. The other big relationship with Harvey Bullock. I mean, I love mm-hmm. that. I mean, in a sense, to Jim's moral compass and straight man was when I his dark humorous um, partner. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't say comedic, you know, he's, he has some pretty dark moments, does does Harvey Bullock um, in the episode, whether it's you see him just drinking mm-hmm. and so on, you see him with hookers, but he has some great one-liners that comes into play, and that just sort of contrasts nicely with Jim's straight man yep. uh, approach. And for me, the arc of their relationship, we mentioned it on our thoughts for um, Legends of Gotham, mm-hmm. was was really good going from this suspicion and distrust between the two whilst recognizing that they were both detectives through to sort of a a truce between the two of them and an understanding that you know well we're both detectives and you're my partner and I will respect that to ultimately um Harvey Bullock despite all the information held back from him by Jim saying you know the people who I put my trust in, the Fish Moonies and and her crew uh, and other people, they are after me just as much as they're after you. Yeah. I'll put my cards in with you and you're a cop. And ultimately, to a point where it became the opposite. I totally have your back. Let's go and do this. Yeah. Um, and, and fighting together to um, protect one another to the point where then that partnership was just broken in two mm-hmm. by Mer Jane's Aubrey and for me that was a huge shock at the end of the Lovecraft episode completely unexpected in that sense amazing uh, that that happened it was a complete surprise a good surprise mm-hmm. and so I thought that was an excellent arc I mean their relationship is still going to be there it's just that they won't be partners yeah. detective partners anymore yeah. uh, that will still be developing I would think but it now adds to a new interesting dynamic. Who will be Harvey's partner? And how will Jim cope being 
a simple officer being demoted in mm-hmm. Arkham Asylum. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose one of the other big relationships that we that we mentioned a minute ago was just kind of the relationship between Jim and the other members of law enforcement. Like we got Harvey, you know, that's that's a huge relationship in itself. That's why we kind of pulled it out. But you know, Jim's relationship to the GCPD, it seems like every other member of the GCPD is on the take. You know, we see about three or four other officers that are in there. None of them respect the code of, you know, for example, not smoking over the dead body, which is uh, which is one of the one of the cops does. You've got every other cop has uh, is being paid off. Um, but then you have Edward Nigma, who's part of the GCPD, um, and his relationship with Jim is really interesting. Just wanted to kind of call that one out, where you know, essentially, Jim's the only person that's paying Ed Nigma any attention. He's the only one that solves some of the riddles that. That I think that poses to him, um, he seems to be really infatuated with with Jim Gordon. Absolutely, to be honest, yeah. um, maybe a bit more than that. You never know, but uh, but he does seem to be really interested in, in Jim Gordon. And then you've got Captain Nesson, who started out with with her her famous line, which was essentially, "If you don't bend, Jim, you're going to break, or uh, you're going to get broke by Gotham." Essentially, yeah. Um, that's that's where where her her kind of arc with Jim started out. Towards the end of the season, she's totally on his side and totally got his back. You know, it's a it's a really interesting kind of parallel between them, and then the big relationship between Jim and the major crimes unit. Exactly on so many different levels. Whether it's and he doesn't know this yet, but that personal level of Rene and Barbara Keane, mm. which he knows was something in the past, doesn't know that it's happening at the moment. Again. There's an awkward situation that you can see coming down the tracks Tracks there. But ultimately, that idea that the MCU started off suspecting Jim um, as being corrupt, being like Harvey Bullock to an extent, Absolutely. or other members of the GCPD, as you say, who for them, they just see them all being on the take, just being another corrupt cop that they need to keep their, their eyes on, that it ultimately comes back that... He shot Oswald Cobblepot, their snitch, and for them, a good one. And their pursuit of him, ultimately, that he is wrong, he's bad, he's corrupt, he's on the make as well. And it ends with that great scene where they both come to uh, arrest him at Barbara's apartment. But ultimately, in the whole resolution of this uneasy relationship were they then come in as the heroic duo to save him from being shot and taken to Falcone uh, by Victor Zaz at the GCPD and then being given the Wayne's murder case and being transferred over to them being introduced to Bruce Wayne and and Alfred to say these are good cops and and this case will be safe in their hands. Yeah, absolutely. And seeing the transformation be- between you know those those characters, um, Christmas Allen and Rena Montoya, at the beginning of the series, all the way through to episode six or seven, where they're investigating Jim, and then them being then them essentially saying, "We now one hundred percent trust Jim, and Jim one hundred percent trusts us so much so that he's going to let us in on the fact that he's investigating still the Wayne murders, and he's going to let us be involved." And just finally, I think the other great thing um, with Christmas Allen and Rene Montoya are their dynamic together. Mm-hmm. You see Christmas Allen have Rene's back and vice versa all the way through. You've got that great scene where Jim and Rene are confront one another on the steps of the GCPD and you see Christmas weigh in 
to have his partners back. Is there a problem here? Yeah. yeah. That bond, that, that sort of knowledge of one another uh, and that protection of one another as um, a partnership within the MCU is another great dynamic between these two characters. Absolutely. I'm hoping we're going to see a lot more of the MCU in, in the second half of the hope. season. Perhaps they're going to be the ones that are going to you know, clear Jim's name now. Perhaps that's going to be their goal uh, for the second half of the season. We're going to be really interested to see what they do. Uh, any more on Jim Gordon? No, not for me. I, I think um, you know, Jim Gordon is one of those great um, straight characters um, that provides a way in for the audience to see the craziness that is going on within the world of Gotham. And I think Ben McKenzie did a really good job of it playing Jim Gordon and I can't wait to see what he does for the the other 12 episodes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's go on to his puppeteer or his nemesis which would be um, Oswald Cobblepot. Hello, Penguin. Hello, Miss Mooney. Penguin, Miss Mooney and her boss, Mr. Falcone, feel disrespected by you. Oh, dear. Well, that certainly has never been my intention. Now, respect is very important to them. Now, I want a sincere apology from you for making them feel that way. Oh, gosh, of course. If I've in any way caused anyone to feel a lack of respect, I apologize. Sincerely. There you go. Can't say fairer than that. So that's definitely one of my favorite scenes. A apology? An apology from Oswald Colopot to Fish Mooney? Uh, asked for by his new kind of boss, uh, Moroni. I just think there's so much in that scene for people that have watched the season and really enjoyed it. Yeah, um, it really shows the coming together of those three strands all focusing on Oswald Cobblepot, yeah. Sal Moroni, Carmine Falcone, and Fish Mooney. Yeah. All, in a sense, colliding towards or being exploded out of um, Oswald Cobblepot's sphere of influence. And that's a real surprise, mm -hmm. given episode one, and that he essentially starts out as this low-level umbrella boy for Fish Mooney. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think it's been one of the huge kind of surprises for me, the whole arc of Oswald Cobblepot, what we're calling Rise of the Penguin, I think. I think we, we kind of coined that pretty early on. When we were hashtag there. Penguin Rising. That's it, that's it. Um, <laughs> like, it's very much, um, when I saw the first episode of the show, when we saw the pilot, when we saw the, the prequel stuff, we knew that that Robin Lord Taylor was going to be quite central to the show. We knew he'd been cast as a main as a main character um, for the full season of the show, but I wasn't expecting him to be so central. I had thought he was going to disappear at the end of the pilot um, and then come back, you know, three, four episodes later, perhaps, um, or just to be living out of Gotham for a while, perhaps. It's a, it was a possibility to me at the time. Um, but to see that he's almost started and ended almost every episode of the show has been quite interesting to me, you know. Um, he starts out as a, as a snitch for the major crimes unit for Montoya and Allen. He's selling them information about Fish. Um, you know, he's he's kind of implicating Fish in, in the fact that she set up Mario Pepper um, at the beginning of the of the of the series um, in the Wayne murders, he's kind of calling out the fact that she did that she did that uh, to the major crimes unit. You know, um, he's pleading with Jim not to kill him because he can see what's coming. And is that because he's the one with the plan? He's the one that knows what's going to happen. Because as you mentioned earlier on, is he the one that's thrown the grenade into Gotham by having the Wayne the Waynes killed? Is he the one that that kicked this whole thing off? 
Um, or does he know who did? And he knows what that will do. I mean, it's a whole host of different reasons. And mm. again, it's that he survives through his charm and his good luck. That and the fact that it is Jim. Not good luck, sorry. Good luck. Good luck. Yeah, yeah not good luck. <laughs> through his charm and his perceptive um, ability to read others, which presumably he's you know, learned as well from Fish Mooney because that's one of her strengths. Yeah. But he's able to spot that Jim has this sort of right and wrong. He knows and has a sense of right and wrong mm-hmm. and, and when to use it. And he's also a cop with that in Gotham. That makes him a special beast to Oswald Cobblepot. Yeah. And it's... He manipulates and uses that for his own ends and where necessary against Jim to get a reaction or just a simple action out of Jim Gordon, but other people. And you see this master uh, manipulator. And so to see him climb up from being a low-level umbrella boy, but even to the point where he's been murdered, or thought to be murdered, mm-hmm. he's cast out of Gotham. Um, he's been told to never come back, to stay on the run. He comes back sooner than I was expecting, yeah. I have to say. I mean, when he comes back at the end of Balloon Man, start of Viper, yeah. where it's, hello, Jim, old friend, as the doors open to Barbara's apartment. I mm-hmm. mean, a great cliffhanger or, or, of a scene. Uh, and a great way then just to start up the next episode. That was surprising. I could have seen him sort of in the wilderness developing further um, or whatever. I don't know, maybe episode eight, who knows? Um, yeah. Or I didn't expect him to come back to Gotham so soon. Yeah. But he does. And he uses people and situations and, and context of what's going on in Gotham to gradually come back and become, again, a major influence and player between the two houses of Moroni and Falcon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. He's brought in that whole element of Gotham that we might not have seen otherwise. We know Fish could have been the leading point to that, potentially. I kind of was expecting that, because seeing you mentioned uh, him arriving at the door of Jim, that could have been the cliffhanger at the end of episode 10 uh, of this season, that that could have been the point when everything changed for the show that Penguin was back on the scene. But that's episode three. <laughs> you know, there's so much that happened after that. Uh, episode three or four, sorry. Um, so much that happened after that. But, you know, overall, it's kind of been really interesting to watch his development. We we saw the scene where he's, where in episode two, where he's sitting in his new, his new digs, his little, uh, his little camper van with, you know, loads of stuff plastered over the ceiling, laying out his plan for the future of, the penguin in Gotham, essentially, when he returns to Gotham as this much more uh, creative and manipulative character than he had been in the past. That's in episode two, Selina Kyle, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. And we kind of had seen that and, and gone, I wonder how much this will play out. And it's fan- fascinating to kind of look back on that and see how much did actually play out. So you wonder, while it looks like he's falling in and out of situations, he is manipulating them very well. And if it goes his way, it's definitely going... Uh, going to be a big move against Moroni and against Falcone and against Fish Mooney. It's going to be a big move that he's making. He has a plan. I mean, obviously, he's done it on the ceiling of the caravan. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the big episode, Penguin's Umbrella, is the big reveal where we see 
ultimately that he snitches, which is we know he, he's good at, mm-hmm. and he will do. He snitches to Falcone as Falcone comes down to essentially tell him that he's going to die. He bargains with his life and essentially rats out uh, Fish Moon mm-hmm. uh, to Falcone. They come together with this plan that Falcone should ask Jim Gordon to shoot him and mm-hmm. to kill him and to dump his body in the dock. That's right. Because yeah. he's managed to read Jim to think that, well, here's where my 50-50 chance that he probably and hopefully won't do it. And mm-hmm. Falcone says himself, everything you have said has has come to pass. It's, it's amazing, that amazing quality. Falcone mentions this and almost can't believe that Oswald can predict the events like this. And then right at the end of all of that, there seems to be a veiled threat from um, Oswald Cobblepot to Falcone, which goes unnoticed by Falcone. That's how I interpreted yeah. it anyway. But you just wonder, is that because he's in the know and he kind of knows where all these different pieces are on the chessboard and how they're going to move? And maybe he sees that the king is going to topple. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, another couple of things, just a little bit about about Oswald that I've loved this season. Number one has been the relationship with his mother, uh, played by Carol Kane, who's, which has just been fantastic. Every oh, time brilliant. they're on the screen together, it's so creepy and so interesting. Um, she's kind of his only confidant uh, in the show. He never really tells the plan that he's going to be doing, but he kind of shares a little bit of information from her and gains a load of back from what from her crazy. Uh, thinking he seems to take a lot from that and kind of get some life lessons from her as they go they're just creepily close but really interesting considering you know oswald doesn't date as he calls out earlier on in the show he is definitely a mommy's boy and I'm, she gives him a bath as well that is very true and very creepy but uh, i am fascinated to see the two of them play it together uh, they're, they're, they're fantastic on screen robin or taylor is great and carol kane is just yeah carol kane is superb and the two of them work so well together um, it, it's brilliant to see. Mm-hmm. And the only other kind of relationship we did talk about a little bit, but the only other relationship I wanted to talk about was Oswald's relationship with Moroni, which I think is fantastic to show him starting out as a cook in the kitchens for Moroni, working his way up, based on a lie, essentially. Uh, and when it's found out that he used to work for fish, um, he turns it to his, his advantage so much that he's able to take out Nikolai, who was Fish's partner in crime, the person she was going to be using to take down Falcone huge manipulation there um, of Sal Moroni, who's essentially supposed to be the number two crime villain in Gotham, which now is leading me to believe that by the end of the season, by the end of the second season, Oswald will absolutely be up there. Second season or the second part? Second season. uh, By the end of this season or by the end of the second season, that Oswald could be right up there at the exact same level as Sal and uh, and, uh, Carmine. You know, I I think it's a really... If they're even there at all. If they're even there. But he could be there where they are now, I suppose. Yeah. And it's just that, you know, he's chipping away slowly at Fisher's um, allies and organisation through Nikolai, but then also to, um, we see this with his replacement. Mm-hmm. Fisher's replacement of Oswald is strung up by his uh, ankles. Information is extracted from him, and then he's well and truly gotten rid of in quite an ominous way, because 
no one can ever know about this, he says to the henchmen, who then proceed, presumably, to slice and dice. <laughs> nice little reference to Man Year One. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Um, and uh, there's so much we, more we could say about Oswald Cobble, but really it's uh, it's one of the, the crimes of only being able to cover ten episodes in a short, sp- a short space of time. But anything else that jumps out to you? I mean, just first off, hats off. First off, and hats off, and both to Robin Lord Taylor for taking such an iconic character from not only the comics, but from TV, from Batman 66, um, and through to then the films with, uh, for example, Danny DeVito's portrayal in uh, Batman Returns, and really made a great character. It's, he's embedded much more into the, the criminal underworld, um, his manipulation of events of people is great to watch. His relationship with his mom, I think, Robin Lord Taylor has done an outstanding job. Um, I mean, his performance is mesmerizing. It's one of the best aspects of the Gotham show so far mm-hmm. um, in these first ten episodes, and that's an incredibly high standard because there's an awful lot about Gotham that I'm really, really enjoying. Um, and it's great to see that character, to me, come back to life in a menacing, meaningful way, with also still a bit of lightness to him. Absolutely. I know you dislike the whole cannoli bit mm-hmm. where he hands them the cannoli. Wasn't my favourite. Um, no. But to me, that was great. It kind of harked back to the Penguin of Batman 66 mm-hmm. whilst delivering quite a menacing look and feel of Oswald as he sits there having handed them poison cannoli. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, 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 I love the contrast, it, yeah. and I think he's doing that really well, bringing menacing lightness and threat, threatening behaviour to a character, as well as portraying him in a very, um, uh, I think, modern and fresh way, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Apart from the uh, apart from the 1966 bomb that he was carrying to uh, Doors, but, uh, but I did love him. I, I think he's one of the best things about the show. And um, that's overall. That's kind of our, our thoughts for the first half of the sh- of the show. Uh, I think we can go on to some feedback uh, that we've received in about the episodes. Fascinating. Fascinating. Points well made, I think. So if you want to send us any feedback, you can send it into feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com, just like Scott Fisher did. Uh, Scott's given us his feedback on the first half of the season, John. Um, so essentially, he started I off... Know. I know. Yeah. I saw it too. <laughs> yeah, you do have access to the email account, so do let He does let me. <laughs> um, so he starts off with essentially saying there's been so many great things. Uh, first thing that stood out so far is Robin Lord Taylor as Penguin. He's been absolutely fantastic. Of the various on-screen versions of Penguin, this one might be my favourite. It shows Penguin is more, more than a thug or being crazy, but is deeply manipulative and intelligent. Those are qualities of Penguin that have not really been shown much. Completely agree. Can't echo that enough. Um, it's just been really great and refreshing to see Penguin and Oswald Cobblepot become this menacing, intelligent, uh, manipulative bad guy, yeah. ultimately. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really, really good. Um, secondly, he says Catwoman has been great. He's really enjoyed Carmen Bikendova's portrayal of Selina Kyle. Um, she's really shown Catwoman as being fun and playful, yet also dangerous and not somebody to turn your back on. Just how Catwoman should be. Uh, we didn't really mention much about Cameron Bikendova 
in, in our kind of recap of the series. But Jess, who's been fantastic, I've really loved her performance in, in the part. I've loved the fact that she's kept silent for a lot of the uh, a lot of the episodes to the, at the start. And when she starts to speak, she's still watching everything that's going on around her. You know, so much so that she is the only witness in the murder in the Wayne's murders. She's in the background watching all the time everything that's going on in the city. I think so. I agree. Um, I think she's been really great to, to watch. Um, it's obviously developed more over the course of the ten episodes, at least towards the the latter half of those ten episodes. I think um, her her role in terms of the prominence of it, and I think that goes for Bruce Wayne uh, David Mazous, who we also haven't really mentioned uh, much as well. But I love the fact that she has been put into this world. I'm not going to say fully formed. That's not the right word mm. to use. But in a sense, she already has those known qualities that you can see from Catwoman in that she's stealing. So she's obviously bad. Mm-hmm. She's pickpocketing. She's willing to do that. She's willing to sell it to um, the guys on the street um, and get money for them steal other people's possessions, even though it's small scale. Um, But at the same time, she does have a big heart, and there are elements. She cares for um, Ivy Pepper. Yeah. Even though she might be slightly afraid of her, she's kind of, she's there, she knows who she is, she's looking out for her. And also, those whole scenes with her and Bruce were really good to see that development, and you see that she's more than just that. And that puts her into that murky... Um, area where she's treading the line between being a good person and being a bad person and she's a much more complex character because of that and I love that yeah yeah, absolutely um, so Scott goes on to, say, to talk about Bruce Wayne and talk about David Mazous which is uh, which is uh, coincides quite well um, says the actor portraying <laughs> He says the actor portraying Bruce Wayne has been a total shock to me at how good he is. He's really capturing the slow transformation of being traumatized by his parents' death and being obsessed with it, uh, seeing Gotham as the real villain and seeing that something extreme needs to happen in order to save Gotham. Uh, we've talked about David Mazous so many times on this show. He really stands out as a, a really good central character. Um, when we spoke to Danny Cannon in our interviews, which you'll hear again, um, they, he does mention that you know the casting of David Mazous really has brought uh, brought a different spin on the show. They weren't really expected to focus on Bruce as much as they have, you know. And I, I think they've done a really good job at showing showing enough, but not too much. I think is is the way they've done it. Uh, Most definitely. And again, done. as the season progressed, it was good to see him finally get out of that room, and it was great to see his interaction with other people like. Tommy Elliott, mm-hmm. like um, Selena Kyle, yeah. like um, well, even Alfred Absolutely. in the real world. And that relationship too has been an excellent part of um, the season so far, which I mean, I'm enjoying immensely. To see that different look and take of Alfred Absolutely. Is, is really, again, refreshing. And I think that's what Gotham brings, is a lot of refreshing elements to characters that We've seen a lot um, before. There's nothing wrong with those portrayals, but it just adds a new dimension, and I think to wider audiences, because, Mm -hmm. yes, the military, you know, ex-serviceman Alfred is known in the graphic novels through Jeff Johns' Earth What, as an example. Mm -hmm. It's not known to necessarily everyone who watched the Dark Knight trilogy, or even Tim Burton's... um, 
Batman films, or even Joel Schumacher's Batman mm. films. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's been fascinating, and definitely Sean Pertwee's portrayal has been brilliant. Definitely one of my favourite actors. I love again every time he appears on screen. Some of his one-liners have been great. Um, but back to Scott, uh, you know, he essentially says the overall story has been great, showing how Gotham became the sewer that we find it um, when Batman comes onto the scene. The mob war subplot has been interesting and well done, but there are a few things I've not liked. Um, Fish Mooney's a terrible character that does not have the depth that so many other characters on the show have. She really needs to be fleshed out more as a character right now. She is just a scheming thug, uh, which does not really interest me much. Um, second thing I've not liked is Jim's girlfriend, Barbara. Uh, she's just too much of a stereotypical comic book girlfriend. For somebody living in Gotham to have almost no backbone like she has really bothers me. There should be some toughness to the character, a little bit of an edge instead of just a spineless jellyfish of a character that spends more time crying and moaning than contributing to the overall story. Harsh words from Scott. Um, so his opinion of Fish, what's your, what's your kind of feedback on that? I've kind of liked Fish Mooney. Okay. Um, I mean, to that extent, I'm not entirely sure I agree with Scott. I can see what he means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that her manipulation and her scheming has shown to be um, bigger and more complex than um, over the course of the, the, the season so far, up mm. to episode 10. Um, but I've kind of liked her theatrical sort of over-the-topness. Again, I think it leads in a bit to um, this element of, like, Penguin with the cannoli or the um, the time bomb. I'm not saying that that's what she's going for, mm-hmm. but it marries the darkness of Gotham with the colour that she brings. I mean, you know, her club is these warm... Reds and yellows, and it contrasts nicely with Salmaroni's joint with Carmine Falcone's house. Hmm. She is almost um, like this exotic theatrical character. She runs sort of a burlesque bar to an extent, you know. Um, so I, I've, I don't mind her. She, she has been or okay for me, but I can see why people have had those um, uh, quibbles and. and complaints about it. Yeah, I think there's a big turning point for me with Fish. I mentioned it on the podcast when it happened, actually, um, where essentially there's a scene where herself and Butch Gilzine are talking, and Butch questions what seems to be for the first time her motivations for doing something, and Fish turns on a dime, drops that theatrical accent, and talks to him in a real street voice, and essentially tells him, it's my way, this is the way I'm doing it, which makes, which kind of is the first time the veil slipped, I suppose. And once I saw that, I realized, well, actually, maybe these last three episodes that we saw Fish, maybe this is just the persona that she has and the persona that she's showing to the other characters in Gotham. She is a second in command. She's not at the level of Moroni or Falcone. She just thinks she is and wants to be there. Yet every plan that she's had to get up to that level has been thwarted throughout the series, whether that be through Oswald or whether it be through Falcone finding something out. Um, But, yeah, I kind of have liked her character by the end of the series, but definitely at the beginning... I did feel it it did feel like a bit of a, a pantomime villain um to begin with. But it felt like that's what she was going for after a couple of episodes I realised that's actually what she's going for. This is the mask that she puts on to, to show to the other characters. On to Barbara. Uh, we talked a lot about Barbara earlier on. Um personally I feel her the storyline has actually been relatively good for a character we've seen for maybe fifteen, twenty minutes overall of screen time for the entire ten episodes. Um 
I don't think that she's really been seen as spineless. I think the fact that she, you know, is trying to save Jim and trying to use her influence to save Jim from something that she can't save him from and doesn't know enough about to even try. Uh, I think that's kind of been the arc that I've seen uh, throughout the season so far. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. I think um, I think Barbara's a difficult one because I'm not entirely sure that, to an extent, a character... Um, a character has gone has flipped between extremes and mm. it's maybe being difficult for the audience. Uh, by that I mean she wants to be in Jim's life and know everything about it. Mm-hmm. They find out and she's on the next bus out of there or she's moved out and so on. Mm. Like, that's quite extreme movements over the space of the episodes that we've been watching. Yeah. Or you're keeping secrets from me and I will walk out on you if you don't tell me and then the next episode her secrets are being revealed to Jim and Jim's having the same response and I just feel that maybe there's been a bit of extremes in the movement of the character over too short a period and maybe that if they had been spaced out more or dealt with for longer that we would see a bit more of that rather mm-hmm. than just this sudden sort of change or yeah. apparent change i don't think it is so i think i understand i think if the, i think it was a more if there was more time dedicated in the show yeah. to these to those aspects i don't think there'd be anything majorly wrong with the choices that she's made as a character absolutely i think, I think the choices aren't aren't against character or against type we just have, probably haven't seen enough of that character to um, to, to to define it as well as we probably should be able to after ten episodes of the show, I think that's. Kind but of... maybe with everything going on in Gotham, that that's one of a potential issue is that there is a lot to deal with. Mm-hmm. What with some of the bigger characters and the overarching storylines, as well as then looking at sort of that investigation of the week if an episode has had it that suddenly makes the episode incredibly busy it doesn't mean to say that it's bad but that maybe it gets lost a bit sometimes mm-hmm. exactly what um conversations um, and developments between jim and barbara happened in certain episodes yeah yeah no agree i understand that um so Scott essentially finishes off by saying that overall he really enjoyed the first half of the season and he's really looking forward to what's coming in the second half. Uh, keep up the good work, really enjoying the podcast. Thanks for listening, Scott. Uh, one question that did just occur to him when I'm writing this. Um, do you think we'll see Bruce discover what will be what will become the Batcave either in this season or in future seasons? Um, his guess is that we'll see it in future seasons but not this season. Any, any thoughts on that? Will, will Bruce discover the Batcave under any point in manner? My thought on that is that Scott, that would be awesome. I would love for Bruce to discover the Batcave. And I think he's probably right. I don't think they'll bring that in immediately this mm-hmm. season, but I reckon it will be a future season. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but that would be brilliant. I would love for that to happen. Yeah, I agree. I think we're going to see a bit more of the grounds of Wayne Manor, hopefully, over the course of, of next season. Um, I don't think he's going to go spelunking uh, very, very soon uh, into into the Batcave. But uh, but hey, you never know. There may be there may be some that may be his little hideout for uh, for when he goes into his teenage years and wants to get away from Alfred. That could be a, could be an interesting <laughs> idea. So thanks again, Scott, for your feedback. Yeah, thanks, Scott, for your feedback. That was great. 
Yep. If anybody else wants to get in contact with us, you can email us at feedback at gothamtvpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at gothamtvpodcast. Yeah, you can also find us on Facebook, Google+, Twitter, or Instagram. Search for us at Gotham TV Podcast. Leave a comment, feedback, discussion item in any of the comments section or of those um, different sites, and we will be more than happy to um, air those on our podcast and discuss them through. Thanks again for all the uh, feedback on this first half of uh, the season of Gotham. It was great. Yeah, absolutely. As we said, uh, we're going to be back next. Next two episodes are going to be about uh, Batman's comic graphic novel Hush. Um, but for now, we're going to leave you with one of our favourite moments from uh, from last year, which was our interviews with the cast of Gotham at the at New York Comic Con. Um, we got to talk to Ben McKenzie, Donald Logue. Um, Danny Cannon, Danny Cannon, Aaron Richards, Robin Lord Taylor, uh, and Sean Pertwee, all of the cast of Gotham at one at one time. Yeah, fantastic um, event, fantastic yeah. roundtables with between uh, ourselves, other members um, around the table, and obviously the um, cast and Danny Cannon. Yeah. So it was great to speak to them and hear their thoughts on these characters uh, at that moment in time back in early October. Yeah, yeah. so I know some of you have heard it before. If you have heard it and you, you don't want to listen to it again, hey, skip on, we'll catch you in a, catch you in a couple of weeks' time. Otherwise, listen to it with our, with our pleasure. Thanks for listening. To begin with, we have Gotham's executive producer and director for episodes one and two, Danny Cannon, who discusses the creation of Gotham the connection with his other police procedural shows, his favourite villain, and the possibility of other vigilantes on Gotham. So talk about the origins of this Where the idea came from? Yeah, the whole process. So because, la- you know, last it's kind of an off, offbeat idea. Uh, Bruno Heller um, uh, had spoken to DC about this, this idea. Um, the origins go back even further than that, but basically um, he, he sat me down at Thanksgiving... Uh, it's the only time we have and uh, he said he gave me the, the pitch basically which was uh, to uh, go back in time in Gotham and meet the only honest cop left and um, it was great because it was the, the conversation we had was about in 20 years time what will make a city like this need a masked vigilante to save it and uh, how why would the villains be so outrageous so we start from that foundation. We had a long way to go, and then we, we start to, uh, you know, Jeff Johnson at uh, DC Comics allowed us to go in, and, and we talked about origins of characters and who had them and who didn't. And we were amazed at how many didn't have them. So uh, that that enthused us. So I mean, obviously you've done a lot of other kind of like police shows. Obviously you've got a huge experience with that. I mean, how, I guess that must have been obviously useful with with Gotham. What's nice about yeah, I spent a lot of time doing that. Um, and then in Gotham you get to throw it all out again because uh, you know well, let's move the body let's do that let's <laughs> yes. smoke around the body yes. let's you know spill my coffee on the dead guy's face <laughs> it, it's um, it, it's going back in time and uh, it's it's a, it's a New York City without gentrification it's a New York City without uh, Giuliani or Bloomberg you know so, so um, it's a city that's spiralling out of control so the procedural thing goes out the window true and which was your favorite villain to uh, think work out the oh, details of? Well, I got to say, uh, I, I I prefer the villains that are upcoming. 
we still we still have uh, many to go. Um, you know, and I, I, I got to say, I, I'll say Bruno's a villain that he created from scratch. Fish Mooney, I thought that was a beautiful, elegant thing, and, and Jada took it up a notch and um, made made what was written even better. Right. Um, now that we've introduced the Vigilante Balloon Man, is this kind of speculation that there could be more vigilantes coming within within the series of Gotham? Yeah, um, I think I yeah. definitely. I think a city that uh, uh, can't trust its uh, mayor or police department or um, can't tr- can't trust your neighbour. Uh, <laughs> there's always got to be somebody attempting to do that. And as the show progresses, um, uh, the way we get to see uh, uh, David um, Bruce Wayne. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way he navigates through it too is very interesting. Right, right. And we see any of the existing cast taking on a vigilante mantle? Will there be a, a Montoya? I, I could movement? not tell you that. Do <laughs> <laughs> you plan on exploring any of the uh, supernatural elements in the DC universe? No, we're very feet on the ground okay. here. I think, uh, you know, who knows, who's to say where a series goes in the end? But for now, we're very happy with the fact that it's very grounded. Uh, even though Gotham is a crazy, slightly theatrical world, um, I- I'd like to think that it's all very credible. So for, for now, we're just going to stick with that. Um, you- uh, given that the um, a number of the DC shows now on TV all involve police forces or have police forces, um, what are the potentials or possibilities that there could be crossovers between different DC properties? Very interesting. Again, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, right, right now. I, I think whatever exists on air is apples and oranges. It's a, tonally, it's a different. It would be a yeah. big tonal shift. Mm. But um, yeah, no. I'm, I'm God. In the first season of a show, as long as we keep building the reality of that situation and keep honouring the, yeah. the, the great legacy of work, then um, I'll be happy with that. Season two will will we'll start again. Cheers. Thanks. Uh, there's besides the obvious city models with uh, like a Chicago or whatever. Do you have any other city models or stories of cities that had such a decadent scenario that enhance or in, in any way insinuate themselves into your thinking? Well, you know what we talked about actually. Uh, you know, the two things when I talked to Bruno about the tone of the whole thing, because you know he knew he needed a partner in, in doing the show because it's, it was quite an undertaking. And and I talked about not just New York in the seventies. I actually talked about Dickensian in England. Which he really, I mean, Bruno's one of the best well-read writers I've, I've ever worked with. And uh, we talked about Dickensian in London and the haves and the have-nots. And that's something that really plays into it. We talked about grim fairy tales. Um, and I talked about westerns also in that a western town is a great way to tell moral stories. Um, but just put a slight... You know, it's, easier, it's easier to digest moral stories when they're played out in a neutral town. Do you know what I mean? And that was why Westerns throughout the 50s, 60s and 70s in America were always incredibly popular because, you know, a, a, a contemporary moral story is easy to, easier to play out in, in, a, in a nondescript town. All right, that was even thinking of... Um, I got to take it. Sorry. sorry. Let me grab one picture then. Thing on this one. one more for safety. I was even thinking of the Roman Empire too. Well, that, that I would let Bruno talk about. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have our interview with Robin Lord Taylor, who discusses his thoughts on the character of Oswald Cobblepot, how he prepares for the role, what he takes from previous live-action versions of the character, and if the Penguin moniker will stick. He also has a great tie. 
Hi everybody. Hello. Hi. How are you? How are you? Good. 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 I really didn't get a lot of prep. I mean, the most, it, it, like, I, uh, you know, when I auditioned, I didn't know what I was auditioning for. It was a fake scene. It was, um, you know, they, it was like the Untitled Warner Brothers project or something. And then, like, it was like uh, the night before I went in, I got the tip off on what it was. And they were like, oh, by the way, you're auditioning to play the Penguin in the new Batman, you know, you know origin story. So it's like, okay. But you know, at that point, like, I was fully prepared and like, you know, I just like went in and like did, did what I did and like, you know, and it worked out. And then I have to say like, in terms of preparation, like I'm so lucky, like the scripts that Bruno writes and, and the world that he's created along with Danny Cannon, it's just so fully realized that it, it's just all there in front of me. You know what I mean? Like I, it's, and the weirdest thing, it's like, it just, when it's right, it's easy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or it just feels like, yeah. And you didn't, you didn't feel like you wanted to see previous incarnations? Well, that was the thing was, is like, how could you not see previous incarnations? You know, like I grew up, but Adam West series played after I came home from elementary school. I'd seen all of that. I'd seen Batman Returns a billion times. And so I was like, more, I could recite that movie from memory. Um, but you know, like, and, but you know, and I knew like from the script that, that they were going in just a totally different direction. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, you're influenced by like, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Bridges Meredith yeah. and Danny DeVito. I mean, how freaking amazing is that? <laughs> and then like, you know, the one thing that like they both brought to it was just that sense of fun, yeah. you know, yeah, where, yeah. which can be hard because it's a dark world and you're playing a villain and you don't, you know, you, you want to bring that you know, with you. So that's definitely like what I took away from their performances and I'm, you know, I'm trying to yeah. bring it into this, you know, yeah. like it's a process. Um, that's a great tie, by the way. Um, you can <laughs> Your character hates being called the Penguin, but will we see him, will we see Oswald embrace the name as the season progresses and Very take on so. that moniker? Yeah, well, and I think that's, a, that's one of the pivotal moments in the first episode is... For me, personally, like, you know, like, like since he was a child, he'd been called Penguin, and that was, you know, very hurtful, and, you know, he was, like, a victim of bullying, and, like, and a lot of it was centered around his appearance and his interests and all of his, you know, eccentricities. Um, but I think the moment that he comes out of the water in the first episode, I really do, and, you know, sounds trite, and I, for, forgive me, but, like, it, it is, like, a rebirth in a way, and I think that's the moment where he's really embraces that, you know, it's like you when you embrace, you know, the yeah. thing that you hate the most, you take the power away from it and you take it on yourself. Yeah, and I yeah. think that's him just sort of harnessing that power and like, you know, okay, you're going to call me a penguin and I'm the freaking penguin. Right. Let's go. You know what I mean? Yeah, 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 right, exactly. And that's, you know, propels him into the rest of the series. So. Well, did you spend a lot of time? Uh, uh, which, which, which part? Just the water. The water? Well, <laughs> thankfully, short one. <laughs> thankfully uh, we shot, we shot... All of the main, wa all of the water stuff was inside, and they, they kept it bath bath temperature, which was which was nice. But uh, I, I th hopefully I sold it, you know. Like, you know a little shiver going on. Or something. You, about the, about the mannerisms, did you spend a lot of time once you knew you were going to be Penguin? Did you spend quite a lot of time developing the mannerisms I, and kind of accentuating them, you know, after you 
you know, been in the water, so you come across as a slightly kind of accentuated version of the previous character. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that was definitely part of the work that went into it, and my, you know, like one of the best things about, you know, with in regards to his walk. Yes. Um, what I love about it is that it's an actual injury. It's, mm -hmm. it's something that we see established, mm -hmm. and it's something that, like, like this whole show is doing is like bringing some reality into this fantastic world. So it's not just like two-dimensional characters. No. And so yeah, I was hobbling around the apartment like a moron, <laughs> like, like, working on it and making sure like it looks good. And then yeah, and then we yeah, Danny was there to like help make it more natural and organic. So yeah. Thank you. I want to get that tie. No, gotta get the tie. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thank you so much. We now have our interview with Welsh actor Erin Richards, who plays Barbara Keane. She discusses her thoughts on the character of Barbara, her relationship with Ben McKenzie's Jim Gordon, how she deals with the tension from fans, and the strong characters on the show. Hello. Here we go. Hello. Very well. How Hello. is everyone? Hi. Hi. Well, I guess I'll ask the same question. Tell me about how you, you know, once you were told you were doing this, or the process of getting into it, and then what were you were told to, to do to prepare? Because, you know, you're talking about a legendary city, a legendary project, and uh -huh. city, so yeah. it's interesting to hear what your mind had. Uh, well, nobody told me to do anything, which was nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got the job uh, during pilot season. And I did a, a rounds of editions uh, with our fabulous creator Bruno Heller and Danny Cannon, our executive producer, Fritz. Yep. It's nice. We all got on very well <laughs> in the room. Um, and got the job. Was over the moon. I've always loved Batman. Obviously, working with these guys is fantastic. And um, on such a you know incredible, um, highly anticipated series at the time. And um, then I sort of went about going back over the movies, which I've always enjoyed. Um, and watched all of those again and then read Year One, which is the, the comic that Barbara appears in lots. But for me, I mean, Barbara doesn't come up. Um... You got it, you got enough shots. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is that every time I try to get a shot, you move. Right, I'll stay still. No, you can talk. Okay, so um, Barbara uh, is, is um, for me, she's a bit of an open book because mm. she's not in the comics that often and also she's in her finished form um, so for me it was just about finding something that was interesting and relevant and would work with what um, Ben has created in Jim Gordon yeah. so that we could really kind of forge a, like an interesting story and a, and a dynamic that people would want to watch right. what about the chemistry sorry no chemistry between uh, yourself and Ben obviously it's, it's a key you know pivotal relationship in the show yeah so I guess you're obviously bouncing off each other. Yeah, I mean we, we get on great as people. We went to watch him uh, do a radio play last night. Oh, really? The whole cast are really very supportive of each other and yes. we hang out a lot. And I get on really well with Ben. We've got kind of similar. We, we approach acting in the same way. We have really similar backgrounds. We both did um, degrees, uh, politics degrees. Oh really? Yeah. We had like the first time we met, we had so much to talk about, and, and just it's really nice to, to be able to get on and kind of. Of feel course. like you yes. can, because we do a lot of pretending. And, yes. you know, yeah. It's not too hard with Ben, he's a good looking guy. What was the radio <laughs> play? Uh, I can't remember, sorry. That's Ben. <laughs> There's so much attention on this show. Okay, I'm okay. sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I promised I wouldn't interrupt with <laughs> yeah. you. You go. But just real quick, yeah. um, what is it like interacting with the friends, when the, uh, the fans, when there's so much anticipation here? Like, can you tune that out and just do the Oh, I don't think we need to tune it out. Like, I, I really I really enjoy on Twitter interacting with the fans, and I, I like getting questions about my character, and I, I like... We feel, um, obviously, a, a great 
kind of sense of um, pride for what we're doing and what's the word I can't think for the fans. Um, we're like really dedicated. Affection. Yeah, yeah. faction and it's responsibility. We feel like a great responsibility. Um, isn't that like a Batman thing with Grinch? <laughs> 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 so that's Spider-Man. Scratch that. Yeah, it has. Spider-Man's in there as well. Um, we feel a lot of um, that word that I just said. Oh my responsibility. responsibility to the fans because they are obviously really into Batman and we, we want to deliver a program that they are interested in and proud of and feel like it's, you know, because we're, we're up against the big boys, you know, like the films are what is in everyone's mind. So we're hoping to deliver something that is a good kind of um, beginning because obviously we're telling the origin stories, you know, like and it fits with what they have kind of grown to love in their, in their finished forms of those characters. You do a great job. Thank you. Thank you. No, no, it's got to be you. I used to be a waitress. One of the big things about, about Gotham is the strength of the female characters in the show. Can you tell us a bit about Barbara's strength, where she gets it from, yeah. where she brings it to Good character, good question. I'm glad <laughs> to hear from you. Um, yes, Bruno um, Keller, our fantastic creator, writes amazing female characters. I've always watched his programs, always had these fantastic female characters, which is so brilliant to play and so important. And I feel like Telly really is leading television is really leading the way at the moment with this and Barbara um, personally I feel like she's such an interesting character she's really strong very intelligent she's really motivated she's always she comes from money but I think it doesn't even matter if you know you, you still have to it sometimes it's harder I think if you come from money to really find a path in life because you get given everything on a plate so she's really kind of forged her way and she's got all of this history behind her and I think the really interesting thing about Barbara is even though she's really strong which loads of women, most women are really strong she also has all of these amazing like weaknesses and character flaws and all of these things that it doesn't take away from her strength it's like just another part of her because this is the fantastic thing about Bruno's writing is um, a lot of women on TV are just kind of boxed you know like that's the hero that's the you know the, the poor broken hearted one and Bruno and other amazing writers at the moment I think especially for Talia creating women who are just multifaceted like they have they can be strong but at the same time they can be like lonely and hurt and that's just everyone you know it's women and men it's just people but finally we get to like play those here we get to talk to uh, the British actor Sean Pertwee he discusses his thoughts on the larger role of Alfred in the show the connection with previous versions of the character and being at New York Comic Con with a show like this uh, Sean was a pleasure to talk to. Uh, he instantly recognized us as Gotham TV Podcast and said thank you directly to us and to all of the fans for uh, for our support over the last couple of months. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Hello. Tomorrow I guess they should have the lead question. <laughs> <laughs> How are you guys? Great. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, great. Loving this. Loving yeah. it. We just got it. I mean, I'm enjoying it so far. I mean, we walked from over there. So. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, right, okay. Um, so, with the casting of Davin Mazouz, uh, yeah. uh, Bruno Heller said that, that essentially he's gotten such a bigger role in the show than was ever expected for Bruce. What does yeah. that mean for Alfred, for your character? It means that it's, uh, I'll be around a lot more as well. I think that we've developed. Uh, I have a son, as you probably know. I've got a son called yeah. Alfred as well, which is kind of He's the same age, so I have a, a, fin- a sort of affiliation with a, a, a affinity with um, boys that age, and it's, a, it's really interesting. David is one of the most driven, most fabulous actors I've ever worked with. I genuinely mean that, and it can be it can be difficult. You know, with 
terms of young people, young actors, young men, young girls. He's extraordinary. He's a focused, driven guy, and he can turn it on, and he's a real sense of pain and darkness. And we found our own sort of heartbeat. We've begun to find our own heartbeat. You're beginning to see it now by episode three. I know there's a lot of people out there that are a little concerned about Alfred's parenting skills in the first couple of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to say, why would he know how to be a? How would he know to be a, how to be a father? You know, he, he's uh, comes from a military background. He uh, blames himself for the, the demise of the Waynes. He should have been there. He uh, never signed any contract to say that I'm now, you know, I'm going to be legal guarding these boys. So how, how would he know? The only thing what we're trying to do, what we're developing, is, is finding a hook, a way of communicating with a young man who's suffering from post-traumatic stress. And then you start to discover that, that Alfred's got issues, he has rage issues, guilt issues, everything else. So we've become a dysfunctional family, and, and it sort of it sort of starts to. Really, we really get out there by episode eight. You'll see a sort of marked change okay. and, 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 a, and a real marked flag in the sand in which direction mm. they're going. Mm. It's difficult to say. Obviously, your Alfred is following on from or kind of prefiguring uh, Michael Caine in, in the films, yes. but obviously, in the old days, the Alfred used to be a bit more posh but do you think that are, are you interested with the kind of the marine direction kind of slightly well not cockney but kind of slightly he is less actually, he's, he's from the east end he's from um, you know, he's from the east end he is he's a military guy his father the, our bible I wrote a bible I didn't write I wrote a bible and I presented to Bruno on the first day I tried to stay away as much as I can I've had about so much respect for yes, my preceding preceding outfits I mean they're just absolutely genius yeah. every one of them I would say um, so you have to you have to find your own so that's sync. Yeah, you can find your own rhythm. Of course. So um, I presented it to him that, that, uh, that my father would have been a butler for the Waynes. He was ill. I went yes. there. I left the services to go to aid, to aid him in his deathbed. Mm -hmm. He passed away, and I took the mantle of being the valet, the, the, the Batman to, to, to the Waynes. And so yeah, and you will see the development of their relationship over the, the next. 10 and I think that what I loved about Sir Michael's interpretation was he represents the common man yes and that's why I think I'm here what is it like bringing the show to Comic-Con and like really presenting this to the fans and interacting with them it's going to be very interesting we're very excited mm -hmm. about it because we've been sort of quite cosseted in our lifestyles because we've been working so hard and so it's really nice Ben's done more I've ever done so it's going to be lovely to see the reaction and so you uh, are going to use your parenting skills for good work Yes, it's a very yeah, good point. They said you treat your son like that. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> we come to our penultimate Gotham uh, interview with Donald Logue, who plays Harvey Bullock on Gotham. Um, and in the interview, he discusses the similarities and differences between Harvey Bullock and the other characters he's played before in other shows, the impact of Ben McKenzie's Jim Gordon on his character, the burden of comedic relief and future broadening scope of Gotham and the characters within it. Hello. How are you? Pretty heavy uh, independent films to a, a pretty heavy character in TV. Uh, do you feel it's like a natural evolution, or do you? It's all. It's you know when you when you're younger and you do college theater or something. I remember we would do. We would do something like. Uh, a Joe Wharton play, and then you'd be rehearsing the Sam Shepard play you'd do next mm -hmm. in the day and do the play at night. So it's an, just being an actor, you mm -hmm. know, and especially the old school. Look at 
Look at guys like Burgess Meredith and those kinds of careers. You know what I mean? So your job is to go all over the map, and it's not. It's it's a little tricky, but that's what the fun is. So what's some your take said, on the? Oh, I'm sorry. What's I, your take on Paul, some people have said the process of TV is different than the process of film. That's why I asked. I'll give you a good story on that one. So when I first auditioned for anything ever, it was a mini series about Common Ground, which was the Pulitzer Prize winning book about the Boston busing crisis in the mid 70s. And so this woman, Meg Simon, who actually cast Warner Brothers with uh, cast the show with Warner Brothers discovered me in Boston. I was a theater actor and I went into audition for this thing and I was reading it and I said, I don't know, man, I've done a bunch of plays. I hear stories. Am I supposed to be smaller? Like I hear the process. And this is even talking film versus television. She goes, just act the effing scenes. <laughs> right? And I was like, that kind of, you know, if you think that way, you're thinking the wrong way. You know, every, you know, every medium requires its own type thing. Like, I did a sitcom for years, and at first it wasn't supposed to be in front of a live audience, and they made a decision to change, and I didn't know how I felt about it, and uh, John Lithgow said, it's a two-act play in front of an audience. It's fantastic. You know, it's just, you're like, okay, it's its own animal that way. I, and John Lithgow, to me, is kind of the king. He's, in, in, when you talk about bouncing between all the mediums and... He's an amazing guy, super, super great guy too. Because What's your take on this character? Because he's so complicated and he's so layered, and you do a great job. Oh, thanks. I think my I think my take is just that, like most people, the difficulty I have is that he also seems to have to carry a little bit of the burden of comedic relief, and so it's just feathering, finding that balance of when when it's real serious, when it's dark, when it's hard, when it's kind of goofy, and and so um, it was. I had done comedies in the past, and, and you're kind of living fully in the sunshine of that side of the street. And then I was like, I went to Sons of Anarchy and Vikings and Copper and stuff. And so then it was comfortable because you you know exactly it's dark. And so this one, this, I was like, whoa, this is a little tricky to bounce back and forth, almost arbitrarily so. So um, do you see him fun. as corrupt, or do you see him as just? I think a lot of people are corrupt. I mean, I think. Uh, I think <laughs> I, I mean, I think if you, you know, I have friends who work in, you know, over the course of your career, you luckily you get to meet people who are work in law enforcement. You meet criminals. You meet, you meet people in the military, and they're like, you know, it wasn't cool, but we had to do kind of a deal with this warlord to get through that. You know, it's like that's the world. And if you want to think that it's, um, you know, I'm sure a lot of young idealistic people have marched into places like Washington D.C. and into a police department and been like, well, I know how the, what the culture is, but I'm going to change it. Yeah. And you're like, and it, and it's not, it's not that everybody's corrupt either. There's just gradations of some things you let slide, and some things, you know, there's big T truth and small T truth, and he knows so, how it works. I think he does. I think at the end, when you catch him, he really just wants to get to the finish line. He may yeah. want to stash some money on the side, you know, legally or not, and he wants to get to his pension. And then Jim Gordon comes in, and he's seen 50 of these guys. Except they've never been Jim Gordon. They've never had the kind of moral fiber of this guy. And it reawakens in Bullock the thing that, you know, Jim Gordon's such a strong character that it that it changes Harvey. You know, it reminds him of who he used to be, I think. What's the appeal of, of you know, and I haven't just played in police shows, but you seem to have played in quite a few. Obviously, you had life and you've got this. I mean, what's the appeal for you as an actor? Or is it just a different role? 
I would say it's just a different role, you know, because um, trying to stay as flexible as possible because I have respect for all roles and professions, but yes. there's something so iconic. You know, I just came off, when, when I did the pilot for Gotham, I was doing what I thought was a really thrilling run on Law & Order SVU, and, and um, so, uh, which I loved a lot, and you know, to be able to play, there's something so iconic about the New York detective. Of course. You know, there's a, there's, this, London wouldn't be on, you know, any big city, but there's a million amazing stories happening every night, every day. There's stuff going on here, and these guys get to beeline to the yes. strangest, darkest part of the human condition, and I think there's something fascinating about it. Um, will we will we get to see the story behind why Christmas Allen um, is no longer with Harvey Bullock? I Gotham? think we get. I think we get to see. We haven't gotten to it. We haven't gotten to it yet. Mm -hmm. But we get more backstory on on you know Montoya and Allen and the MCU. You, yeah, and, and hopefully, what's nice too is that I think that the show is starting to breathe more into the worlds of Selena Kyle, mm -hmm. Bruce Wayne, Alfred Pennyworth, which I like. Like. It was fun to have so much focus on uh, Gordon and Bullock's partnership, but it's such a big world that it, I think people will be excited to start seeing it breathe and, and open up a little bit. Thanks very much. Thanks very much. In our final roundtable interview from New York Comic Con for Gotham, we talked to Ben McKenzie, who obviously plays Jim Gordon, the central character on Gotham. Uh, he talks about the similarity between Alfred and Jim, his push-pull relationship with Harvey Bullock, Guide in the Darkness within Bruce, and his dream job of playing Jim Gordon. Is it like okay. uh, coming in and dealing with the fans and interacting? It's great. I mean, I'm really excited about this panel because we, you know, when we were in, in, in San Diego, the show wasn't on yet. Mm. So um, it's an odd thing to interact with fans who haven't seen it yet because they're excited and, and also, you know, this is not going to suck, right? You know, kind of thing. <laughs> and you're like, no, no, I really think it's going to be good. Um, so this will be a real opportunity to, to, to see people who have actually now seen the show and what they think of it and get their questions. And what's it like playing an iconic character and making it completely your own? It's a thrill. It's an absolute thrill. It's a, it's a kind of a dream job in that respect. I mean, it was very intimidating initially because the character has been portrayed before and portrayed by some brilliant actors. Uh, but what's freeing about it is exactly what you pointed out, that we are showing how he came to become, how he came to be, how he how he sort of grew into the role of commissioner. Um, and that's never been seen on film before. So um, it was a chance to sort of take advantage of the mythology and, and the, 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 the sort of deep love for these characters, but also a chance to, to breathe fresh air into that. Well, they, they set up Jim as sort of a mentor to what Revolution sees. Yes. Uh, are we going to see more of that? It's super different from the comics, and what is it like sort of you're basically helping to create Batman? <laughs> yeah, well, but I think I think Jim starts off trying not to create Batman. I mean, I think he, he, he is a law enforcement officer, and you saw that in the third episode with Balloon Man, who was the first vigilante that Gotham had seen, actually targeting people who are morally corrupt, but going outside the law to do so. And Jim rightly is deeply concerned about this trend in Gotham that if if, um, if if people choose not to follow the law, there is no law. You know, if people decide to go outside the law even for the right you know, moral reasons um, the whole society falls apart. So, um, uh, when he starts off counseling Bruce, he's trying to 
trying to educate Bruce on how not to fall into that trap because he sees a darkness in Bruce. He sees a, an incredible intelligence, an incredible uh, sort of incredible integrity in this young boy, but he also sees a darkness and an anger that he's trying to to uh, direct in the right way. So you, see, you have this area to negotiate between when you know the murder and. When he, the full-blown Batman. What do you do to, to envision who he might be? Is there any kind of a guiding source or train of thought in your mind? Who Gordon would be? Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it's 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 actually quite straightforward in a way. He's he's a, he's a warrior. He's a military man. So he came straight off the front lines, pretty much back to Gotham, where he he saw heavy action and and. Um, and so he approaches it with a with a uh, military man's perspective, uh, moral, morally rigid, um, can do, stoic. You know, fight forward, fight forward, fight forward. Don't look back. Um, unfortunately, he realized that the terrain is much more complicated than than even the war he was in, the war in which he was fighting. So he has to learn how to live in in Gotham and get things done. Um, Cutting deals, educating himself, perhaps, perhaps making decisions that morally are dubious, um, in order to get the kind of positive change that he wants. And this is a backstory that's in your head. They haven't said do that. You really. Well, we talked about it. I mean, you know, it's set up in the it's set up in the pilot that he's a military man. Um, uh, Harvey Bullock leaves Essence's office after trying to basically get rid of the kid and says, oh, you're a war hero, your daddy was a big DA, and I can't get rid of you because of all that stuff. We don't we don't dwell on it, and, and hopefully we won't do you know flashbacks or anything like that, just because they're clunky. Uh, but yeah, that's, that's the approach. I mean, he's basically, he was raised that way from the beginning because his father was a DA, and a, and a revered DA, and, and a noble man, perhaps not quite as noble as Jim thinks he was. And uh, and so he's always prided himself on this 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 morally rigid um, stance, and yet um, he'll learn that perhaps he can't. He has to be a little more flexible. Yeah. So are, are there any more parallels between Gordon and and, um, and Alfred? They're both military men. Obviously, Alfred was in the Marines, and Gordon was in the Army. Are there any? Do you see any parallel between the two characters? There are. Uh, the parallels are, are, as you said, that their 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 approach to perhaps life, I guess, being a bit bit sort of stoic about it. At the same time, Alfred has receded from sort of the battle lines. He doesn't. He's not working on the ground level, law enforcement, and um, and his charge is to take care of Bruce. Um, but his his school of parenting is a bit um, unusual, let's say. And, uh, and Jim's is actually, oddly, I think, probably a bit softer. He's probably yes. trying to actually talk to the boy and, 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 and get him to understand things on a deeper emotional level, whereas, whereas Alfred's probably coming from an older set where, where, where children are supposed to be sort of managed and, and taught things. And seen and not heard. Seen and not heard and, 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 and drilled a bit, you know, sort of like you would drill soldiers yes. um, as he sort of fences around Wayne Manor with them. Um, so yeah, it's a fun relationship, and they are they are essentially battling over Bruce's soul. To yeah. to Your partner Sorry, Harvey Bullock. Okay, one, one, yeah, one. Your partner Harvey Bullock yeah. and has gone path of least resistance, and now you're that block in the way. Yeah. How does that um, develop over the season? That tense relationship where you're trying to maybe drag him out of yeah. the mire, but he's trying to drag you in. Yeah, it, it, we end up sort of 
sinking both back into it in a way. I mean, sort of pull out and fall back in. Um, and of course, I'm hiding the secret from Harvey that I that I have not actually killed Oswald, and that will come back, and that will create yet another layer of tension between the partners. So it's a it's a complicated relationship that will only become more so. But they do they do at the end of the day teach each other things begrudgingly. They learn from each other. You know. Can they trust each other? Um, eventually, probably, but <laughs> not yet. Not <laughs> now. Thanks, Ryan. So so the light is weird here, so I'm trying to, find All right. to get you in the best light. Thank you. Thank you so much. Hey, uh, the no, 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 that's your fault. No, no, no. I understand. Yeah, the the yeah. Thank you. Yeah, we are hoping. This, we're really excited about seeing where it goes. This oh, thank you. I, I'm excited to show it off. I'm really proud of it. Thank great. you. Right, so those are our interviews with the cast of Gotham from New York Comic Con. Yeah, it's great to hear their views sort of with the 10 episodes gone back in that um, time back in October. Um, it's really great to put them in context and also just to hear their thoughts on the whole show and project. So, yeah, it was really good to, yeah. uh, to listen to them. Absolutely. Thanks again for joining us. And yeah. We'll talk to you next time for our review of Hush. Yeah, thanks again. And we'll see you for Hush. <laughs> Gotham TV podcast. Do not cross Alan and Montoya. Honk, honk. <laughs> Mayor Aubrey James has been quite a central character in the show over the course of the episodes. He's the one that introduced. Selena, stop it. Honk, honk. <laughs> First off, and hats off, is Robin Lord Taylor has taken such an iconic character uh, played by obviously um, Danny DeVito and Hong Kong. <laughs>